0: Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you and I hope you enjoy. Welcome. I'm pleased to have on today Kerwin Holmes, a PhD student at the University of Virginia. How are you, Kervin?
1: Doing well, thanks. Nice to talk to you again.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in class with Kerbin uh, when we were at Chicago together. A very intelligent and learned man. I'm very, very happy to have him, have him on today with me. Kerbin, would you like to start and uh, tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for the introduction, man. I appreciate it. Uh, those are some good times, and uh, I think we were together in Syriac and German. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, really yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Where to begin? So first of all, I got my bachelor's degree at Morehouse College um, in Atlanta, a historical black college. Um, uh, Usually people drop the big names that came from there, Um, like uh, the first one has to be usually um, a certain person. I'm going to start there, though. I'm going to go with um, there were some uh, big name men who actually came through Morehouse who taught there. Um, John Hope was president of Morehouse College, for example. Uh, He was a civil rights leader. In the early 1900s, um, you also have, uh, uh, although he doesn't, he didn't teach uh, at Morehouse as a formal professor. He did teach at um, there by Clark Atlanta University. W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, you also have Benjamin Elijah Mays, who actually graduated from, got his PhD and his master's from Chicago uh, before becoming president of Morehouse College, um, and he was the president of Morehouse College at a time when another young man named Martin Luther King Jr. went to the college. Um, and also Spike Lee, the director, also with the Morehouse College. So it's a good uh, little legacy from Morehouse. Um, uh, definitely, if you have the opportunity to uh, look into the school and, and see what's happening there, I encourage you to. Uh, but there's that school. Um, the history department there is phenomenal. Um, one of the, I, in my opinion, one of the strongest um, departments there. Um, very phenomenal professors. Um, and they really worked us hard and got uh, me personally prepared for UChicago. I got went to UChicago uh, in 2016 of the fall um, and graduated with my masters in 2018. Um, I began my career at UVA in 2018 um, that fall. And uh, yeah, this is going on year two at UVA. Um, and there was something interesting about me is that i gave that story because i did not have access to ancient languages at morehouse morehouse is great um for what it was uh uh what it had um they really focus on uh, american history um so i did not have the access to the ancient languages that a lot of people had going into the master's program i had to pick all of that stuff up um along with the formal studies of how to do graduate work um while i was at university of chicago which was particularly difficult because it's a difficult university to go to. It's it's one of the best research universities in the world. Um, But it is doable. It's just, it's just difficult. And and I had to work part time. Um, And, and so definitely, I I realized that um, academics is definitely a rich, a rich, a rich man's game, a rich woman's game. Um, And you, I've just put an, it's just a message out there for everyone who's um, just aspiring to be a scholar in this field or any, Particular field at all. Um, it is possible. It, you're not an island. Don't be an island. Um, but definitely, you need to have personal grit and determination. Um, and really, I would say also the favor of God to succeed in these areas. Um, I picked up Greek and Syriac um, in that order at UChicago. I went to the Syriac route because not every university teaches Syriac. It's very rare for some reason. Um, it's starting to become more popular now. Um, but there are many, many benefits to Syriac. We can probably talk about that later on um in this episode but going forward i got into an interest in syriac christianity actually while i was still learning greek um came across the writings of ephraim the, the syrian uh fourth century uh deacon uh, from the town of Nisibis. so and really got into sort of eastern christianity this christianity that spoke a language very similar to aramaic in fact the dialect of aramaic very similar to what Jesus spoke. Um, and it just opened a lot of doors for me as far as exploration and really, really, really touched on what I really want to do um, since the beginning, which was study these Mediterranean roots of Christianity and get into um, really the historical milieu of where the, where the church came from. Um, as a Protestant, um, there's a lot of stuff that um, we're not told in um, ancient church history. It's not really emphasized. Um, is a travesty. I'd like to be one of those up-and-coming scholars to help um, bring an awareness of that to my Christian brothers and sisters, who are especially in the Protestant tradition, but also in other traditions as well, that only focus on particular flavors of that ancient tradition, and, and that very much um, sometimes anachronistically applying their own perceptions of modernity to the ancient times. Um, and so, yeah, my, my, my current studies focus more on uh, my current interests, I would say that. Focus more on the nature of the, of the divine, on um, the divine nature, divinity, um, especially in relationship to humanity, and as that point of conjuncture that Christology comes together, especially in the church history. Um, that's what I'm studying right now um, in the University of Virginia, in the Judaism and Christianity and antiquities, um, or in antiquity, late antiquity particularly, uh, program. JCA is what we call
0: it. Thank you so much, and uh Current is a very impressive individual. I'm very excited for our conversation. He also has a background, and I mean, we've had discussions also about Islamic studies, so he's pretty well-rounded. And uh, I hope a lot of that comes out today. So I just want to get started and ask you, what is Christology?
1: Right, uh, man. Once again, thanks for um, thanks for the compliments, man. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if my skin wasn't so dark. You probably see me blushing. Um, yeah, so. Christology really um, starts with the the emphasis on what in the world Jesus came to do um, in the Christian faith. That's really where it hinges upon uh, in most of the arguments. Now, now it really gets into metaphysics. Um, like I said, my interests personally are in the nature of the um, divinity and humanity, um, those two natures. But really when it comes to Christology the the ultimate emphasis is, is on what Jesus came to do uh, as that really informs how um, Christians um, both what we call later heretical and those who would um, come out on top as Orthodox or as the general fold of the common teaching as Orthodox um, um, established in their councils and in their com- in their church communions excuse me so um, the, at the very first point I like to just make sure that we are correctly oriented toward Christology to realizing that it first and foremost comes with a, a focus on what Jesus came to do. The second sort of layer to that, of course, as I already mentioned, is the metaphysical layer, which is how does Jesus' nature enable him or not enable in a sense of like a passive passive form, but really uh, make him the only one able to accomplish what he came to do. Um, The uniqueness of Jesus is something that the Gospels, um, ever since, uh, I mean, really the beginning of Christianity, I mean, it's it's, his title being the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, um, the servant of the Lord, um, the man of God, uh, the prophet, the ultimate one in in whom the culmination of the Hebrew scriptures and oracles of God come together and and hold together Um, for the Christian, both backwards towards the Hebrew scriptures and forwards into the Christian scriptures. Um, that all has to do with uh, how Jesus is unique in his position, um, how he fulfills roles prophetically um, and who he is and, and really in and what he is. Um, so really that's Christology in, in a nutshell, as far as the study, um, the typical positions within Christology are a broader subject, which we're going to talk about. Um, but, that is Christology in a nutshell.
0: Okay, and this is, of course, just something different, difficult for some people to grasp in terms of the various natures of Christ. And that's something I, I want to move into now. If you could just tell us something about the different natures of Christ, how different groups and sects of Christianity perceived Jesus and the different councils that were important.
1: Yeah, um, man, you still ask great questions. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I want to start first with the with the writings of Paul, I think I think most people take a more historical approach. I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a historian since my bachelor's um, degree. So um, typically, scholars would say the writings of Paul are, are the earlier um, Christian writings. Um, and so what we have to realize is Christian writings are they have a nature of the ones in the in the canon the christian canon um that's generally agreed upon the 27 books and in what's called the new testament by christians um they generally have a dual nature to them um the first nature they are is uh the, the first nature they have is that they describe um through the through the life of jesus how christians ought to live Given the reality of the incarnation an incarnation, it comes from a Latin term for the the embodiment or God um, becoming embodied. I'll, I'll say that to make things more simple. Um, and the other part of the nature of Christian writings is that they are expressly interpretative. Um, writings on the Hebrew scriptures that came before that prophesy about this uh, individual, this Messiah, as Christians see him, um, the one who was incarnated, that God become man, or or the Word become flesh, as the prologue of John says. Um, So in that dual nature of the Christian scriptures and that they teach Christians how to live given the reality of the incarnation, and they also look back upon the Hebrew scriptures and make sense of the prophecies that came before given that reality— um, the perceptions of who Jesus is really focused upon, focuses upon two major issues in the early church. What do you do with the Hebrew scriptures and what you see Jesus doing, like what he came to do again, that core element of Christology. Um, so very early on in Paul's writings, you have this, um, well, given the person of Paul, Paul of Tarsus or Saul, um, people, Some people will say that his name got changed to Paul. It's not really what the scriptures say, the Christian scriptures say. Um, commonly back then, people had more than one name, especially in that culture, uh, climate, the same way as some people um, today, like Bruce Lee, for example, was not his actual name, the famous Chinese actor. Um, Bruce Lee was his American name because his Chinese name was something different and difficult for some people to say. So Bruce Lee is, is one of his names that that he had, and, his, and he bequeathed that name, the Lee um, last name to his, to his uh, children, um, which actually I think does come from his Chinese name, but Bruce was definitely not his Chinese name. Um, and so that right there is an example modern day of how names function. We have similar things today. Um, Juan might become John in certain contexts. Um, so his name was Saul. His name was also Paul. And so Paul, I was calling Paul because we know him by that name mostly, um, is a Pharisaic rabbi. Um, by his own account, um, who uh, what's a is,
0: what's a Pharisee Rabbi?
1: Oh yeah, um, so the Pharisees they were a sect in in Second Temple Judaism, um, really comprised of laymen, and laymen are are these men who are studious of the script of the Hebrew Scriptures, or, or, or just laymen as a typical term, are, are is, is a term for people who are studious in religious matters without a particularly formal education so even back in the ancient times going back as far as the sumerians like so so far back you had these academies or these these houses of of studying um where people would come together and they would study um the sacred texts of their society um and that carried on throughout a good bit of human history given the ups and downs of and collapses of civilization you had these sort of centers where people would Come and, and learn. Sometimes they'll meet in a simple house. In fact, the Hebrew term for a lot of these places is "is bait, such and such, the house of such and such." Um, so you 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 have these sort of houses, like you have the house, the court, where these groups of men would come together and 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 sort of try to settle legal legal disputes. That would be called the bait Deen, um, the house of judgment um, or justice. Um, you have uh, other houses as, as well, like this this. It's basically a general generic term. And so the lady who comprised the Pharisees, who are the sect, the sect um, they establish themselves from being separated from the populace and their piety. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from um, the Hebrew word parash, which means to separate out. Um, so they're the parushim, the Pharisees, the people who separate themselves out from the general populace, uh, because they're so studious and so strict um, to their adherence of the Torah as they read it. Um, that they are considered holy even the general populace um or especially around jerusalem seem to have considered these men holy um particularly and we have little tidbits about them here and there um, from josephus um it's generally believed that the later um uh, stage of judaism that's a bit of a uh, of a breaking off and, and branch off from second temple judaism um, that happens after the Second Temple is destroyed. The current rabbinical Judaism that, that develops from the Midrash and the Mishnah um, that 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 is mostly from a sect of Pharisees from Jerusalem. You have um, a, a certain text, um, the Talmudim, um, particularly the, the Yerushalmi um, Talmud that comes from, is believed to come from um, Jerusalem or the communities of the Pharisaic rabbis from Jerusalem. That happens. Now I'm talking about something that happens like about a hundred years or so after Paul um that develops from this Pharisaic sort of tradition, uh, scholars believe. But Pharisees were this sort of sect of laity that established themselves around Jerusalem. And Paul, coming from Tarsus, which is um I believe in Anatolia um, or Asia somewhere, um, he comes down to the Jerusalem area to study. Um, Becomes associated with the Pharisaic movement um, and is very studious in that regard. They learn their scriptures backwards and forwards, so to speak. Um, They are people who come and people go to them. Jews go to them and ask how, how, especially if they trust their knowledge, how should I react in this circumstance? And they just teach and mostly they sit underneath um, teachers informally um, and formally um, to, to learn from them. And, and so that sort of discipleship culture is what we see in um, Judea around this time, sort of this sort of um, schooling that happens as you sit underneath a particular rabbi who, as far as I know, is guaranteed to be a male. Um, and you would learn from him um, what you're supposed to learn. And then if the rabbi dies or, or, or what have you, you then move on to the next rabbi who's going to be your, your next um, sort of master or rabbis the term is, uh, until you've basically established a school of your own. Um, it's pretty informal, but then it has some formal, it seems to have some, some sort of formal um, associations, but maybe in more of an informal structure. Um, but scholarship is, is, is sort of um, in a sort of nebulous area as far as the exact structure of these um, rabbinic circles. Um, that being said, Paul Paul comes from this and he persecutes the Christians. And then he 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 hears about this new sect of of people claiming Jesus to be the the promised Messiah, and he sees it as a negative. He's like, this is not the Messiah. There are so many Messiahs around this time coming out and, and trying to start instigate things that are that are not great for the the tense peace that Judea has with Rome, and also just the religious authority that the Pharisees are trying to establish over. And above other sects, such as the Sadducees, which are a group of priests that really are in bed, so to speak, with Roman authorities and control the temple, the central focus of worship for um, Jews um, at this time, Judeans um, around this time. And so Paul sees these Christians as a threat and starts to arrest them. Um, there's a story in the book of Acts, I believe Acts chapter seven, Acts of the Apostles in the Christian um, um, canon, where Paul is present and is held responsible along with others for stoning a Christian deacon named Stephen, a Greek-speaking um, Jew, um, and uh, for basically prophesying that Jesus is going to come back and 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 punish the Jews in, in Jerusalem for um, for um, executing him unjustly and destroy the temple. Um, and so then he goes out and gets letters from um, uh, the temple authorities, I believe, to go and arrest um, people from Jerusalem who have somehow found their way out as far as Damascus. And um, he, on the way there, he gets this startling revelation um, of Jesus appearing to him, and he has a big conversion. Um, and goes through a bit of a period of, I think, three years or so in um, North Arabia. Um, Nebatia, I believe, in particular, but Arabia. And, and then comes back and begins a missionary career um, as a Christian, a converted, a converted Pharisee. Um, he still calls himself a Pharisee, even as a Christian, actually, but so to speak. So his writings focus on, since he had no, we, we could say he had no clear contact with Jesus. I don't go so far as to say he never met Jesus because you never know who people pass on the ancient roads you never know who people met meet and just because paul paul may have heard jesus speak at one point and there were so many people who may have heard jesus speak him mentioning that would have been like nothing especially if he didn't trust in jesus it's like it would have been nothing to mention so i'm not one to say he never met jesus because that they would have been in the same area around the same time um And he's established in the area relatively soon after Jesus dies. And he's supposed to have studied there in Jerusalem for a long while, according to the Christian scriptures. So I don't I don't say he never met Jesus. I do say he definitely was not associated with Jesus at all. Uh, He he might have been like many of us in our graduate careers, too busy studying to worry about Jesus in particular at that time. Um, But he, as a Christian um starts traveling and writing letters to these church communities and that's what we have we have these letters and what he's writing to these letters because these are just letters that he's writing he doesn't think he's writing scripture at this point um is he's focusing on how christians ought to live and how they ought to interpret jesus life and those two big things i pointed out in christology how christians live in the reality of the incarnation and what jesus came to do what made him unique and paul's letters clearly identify jesus as god um in uh several places um for example philippians 2 you have the um, carmen christi um where um, paul is very much elevating jesus to the point of being um on the level of i'm not going to say the divine name um, because i know i have some listeners who might be rabbinical jewish um listeners um but i'll just say hashem the yod hey vav hey um jehovah might be what some people know um the german corruption um but he definitely believes Jesus to be um, um, Adonai, um, the God of Israel. Um, he substitutes Jesus for a verse in, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, I believe, um, where he says, Every knee will bow every time we profess that Jesus is Lord, the Greek word kurios, which is a substitute for the divine name, Hashem, to the glory of God the Father. And the Father is, is, is identified as um, the God of Israel. Um, in the Christian literature, so Jesus is identified as Kurios, the God of Israel, to the glory of the Father, who's also identified as the God of Israel. And so what to do with that statement in Paul's, letter, um, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, is part of the contention for later Christians. And I'll take a breath there and let you ask your next question. But that's basically what Paul is doing, and that's what typically Christians are fighting over, is how to how to interpret those things
0: okay and then what's the time period right now
1: right so i believe this i'm just gonna go general range for paul's letters people generally date them anywhere from 50 to 63 i think ad it's what typically i've seen in in much literature um i don't know exactly when as far as the order of what the major theory is of when philippians was written um I'd I, I find this I find the sort of orders of the letters very interesting even the letters that, that scholars uh, typically leave out um, of uh, what are considered to be the authentic letters of Paul. Um, for um, most scholars um, say I think about seven are authentic. Um, if I can name them off by memory if not I'll, I'll look them up as first uh, Corinthians, second Corinthians, Philemon, Philippians, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians. I know Colossians is iffy, but I don't think it's one of seven, but it might be. But Colossians is one of the ones that's that's disputed. But they definitely leave out Ephesians. They leave out all the pastorals. So the letters that Paul writes to church figures, church authority men, um, pastors, that's what they call the pastorals. Um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Scholars generally will say those are not written by Paul. Now, I don't agree with those scholars, um, I have my own opinions. I think that generally, in fact, I think my cards on the table, and I have, I have my own confessional reasons, but I also have my own historical reasons. Because when you get to the bottom of the actual reasons that scholars have for why these letters are not considered authentically Pauline, um, a lot of them are actually based on theological arguments of development, and not necessarily historical arguments on um prose or um or uh, or, or or wording totally. Um not exclusively based on those like sort of concrete historical arguments. They're more based on theological arguments. But um, I believe that generally speaking, not generally speaking, I believe that the, the letters that are contained, um, that are attributed to, to Paul in the Christian canon are actually Pauline. Um, I think you, you, there's a consistent way of reading history, especially given the development of the synagogue um, in the, I think, second century BC, about 100 or so, over 100 years before Paul, um, and the very formalized structure of Jewish communities around Jerusalem um, and a kind of abroad, even in some places um, at that time, that's assumed by historical um, uh, scholars. I believe that there is ample evidence for um, clear reason for having a developed Christology, um, developed ecclesiology um, that is a reflected in all of his letters that are attributed to him in the Christian canon. Um, and we shouldn't expect anything less. Um, given the time period. But that's my own opinion. But that's what you see Paul doing in his letters. He's focusing on what Christ came to do and what, um, how Christians ought to live in, in the reality of the Incarnation. Uh, and that's what people are arguing over for, for 800 years, even to now, as far as the councils in Christianity. Yeah.
0: And then before we, we, we get to the councils, uh, do any of the other, well, do any of the Gospels actually do they contribute to any of the later controversies anything from i know we mentioned paul but in addition to paul do the gospels have any like material that
1: right right and this is where (laughs) this is where i will say yes um definitely and and i know that um I, i say i will say but scholars will say yes definitely and this is where i'm transitioning um into um what some scholars say is the gospels came later than paul's writings um, but they were definitely written to addre- address maybe some early concerns about Jesus' life, maybe as people were dying out, because um, no- nobody lives forever, um, at least not on this plane. Um, so that these gospel accounts, um, the three synoptic gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, John, which is not synoptic, it's, 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 it has events decidedly different, um, in, in various places from the three synoptic gospels and it has um sort of a different focus than the other synoptic gospels these do contribute greatly to um who jesus is supposed to be or understood to be by christians especially the gospel of john the gospel of john seems to be written especially for um these sort of theological understandings of of, of, of Jesus' divinity as perceived by christians um it starts right off the bat with a a good um, philosophical and theological um, both in one excuse me prologue that really identifies Jesus as the logos, a term that's used. I mean, the you look up in um, little Scott um, uh, Greek um, uh, lexicon or, or any sort of Greek lexicon of ancient uh, Greek. You'll see that the entry for logos is one of the, was one of the longest, if not the longest, in the lexicon. Um, the term is used for so many things, um, but one of the one of the ancient sort of understandings of the logos is that it is the divine imprint, the divine um, fullness of God's um, idea uh, for society, for the world that is uh, used. Um, or who use or who sometimes the logos is personified like in the Gospel of John, who then works and operates in the world on God's behalf. That's why in, in John one you see where he says um, later on, no one has seen God, but uh, the only God, the unique God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him as in the God who is not seen. Um, so there you have. Logos being used very much um, for uh, Jesus, but in a divine way. And that definitely does uh, really uh, influence um, uh, Christian writings. um, It's used as a buffer for those who deny that Jesus was ever um, always God. For example, in the beginning was the word was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. So very much as Jesus is identified as Logos in the Gospel of John, um, you have that clear statement that Jesus was always God from the beginning and he was always with God. So you have this sort of statement um, from which later concepts like not later concepts as far as like later things that Christians begin to believe, per se, but things that would begin become formalized by by language later on, like Trinity, for example, um, gets formalized from that belief. Now, this isn't because it's there in the Gospel of John, um, which I typically believe was written in the first century. Um, some scholars believe late first century, some even say second century, but I think they're being a bit um, a bit too skeptical with that. I definitely think the Gospel of John was written in the first century. Um, they they will. This is clearly a gospel that is teaching an early Christian belief that distinguishes between the Father and the Son very clearly, but yet identify them both as God. Um, so you definitely have Trinitarian beliefs um, in, in the Gospel of John. And some might say, that's only two, it's not three. Well, if you look at John 16, you get the Holy Spirit, who the Father and the Son sinned to the believers after promise is promised is he will come after jesus has ascended and left them um jesus won't leave them as orphans is what jesus says in john 16 i believe i believe john 16. he says it. he identifies the holy spirit i think in two places um in, in the gospel of john john 16 is the one i'm most familiar with um he promises it twice in the gospel of john or him twice sorry the God, the holy spirit is definitely a person so holy spirit the father and the son identified as god in fact in the gospel of matthew a different gospel written we believe to jewish people um i used the i used the term earlier hashem for the divine name um the name i won't say um that is um, identified as the god of israel well if you look at um matthew 28 um you'll see that uh in the great commission um uh verse let me just pull it up real quick here um Yes, Matthew 28, uh, 19, um, in the Great Commission, um, Jesus says he teaches his disciples, when they make disciples, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So all three are distinguished, yet they share, they share the one name, and the word there is, is um, onema, and it, it definitely is um, a Greek Word that is used in the Septuagint um, for the Hebrew term Hashem, which Jews to this day use to refer to to God, the God of Israel.
0: So what was it? You said you mentioned Septuagint. What is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, right. The Septuagint is a we believe second century, give or take, Um, maybe maybe earlier. Oh, by the way, um, um, in BC years, the the numbers flow backwards. So when I say second century, at least. I'm talking about the 100s BC, but if I say earlier, then that would be the 200s BC. So we believe it's it's around that time. It's a translation. Now, now let me back up further. The Septuagint, properly understood, only referred to the first five books of Moses that were in Hebrew that were translated into Greek by some scholars. Now we have a document called the Letter of Aristaeus, which which claims that there were 70 or 72 elders taken from the Jewish community in Alexandria by Ptolemy, King Ptolemy, um, the uh, successor to Alexander the Great. And they were put in separate rooms and and told to translate the the Hebrew Torah because he learns about this Jewish culture that's so ancient. And the Greeks were, just like many other ancient people, um, held older cultures that survived to high esteem. And so the Jews were ancient. And so they're like, hey, the king's like, hey, have them right there their their torah in greek translate it but have them do it separately since they all say they all agree on what the torah is and a miracle happens according to the letter of aristeas his his long historical document that uh, all 70 elders translate the the five books of moses exactly the same from that we get the septuagint which comes from the kind of the, um, the word 70 septa um or seven um and so that is that sort of tradition but somehow we just know the Torah gets translated into Greek. Not everyone believes the letter of Aristeas because it seems very fantastical. Um, and from then on, Jews who are increasingly becoming Hellenized as far as speaking Greek, that's all I'm going to say about that as far as speaking Greek, they translate their Hebrew documents into Greek. And so by the time of Jesus' time, most of the – if most if not all – of the Hebrew scriptures have been translated into Greek in some form of fashion, not always by the same person, but they're in they're they're flung around the ancient world. Um, these copies in Hebrew and Aramaic also um, with commentaries and in Greek. Um, and so the Septuagint now, um, in more recent scholarship, actually very recent scholarship, is now used to refer to the entirety of the Greek collection of Hebrew. Um, translated texts and some texts that we believe were originally in Greek um, that were never translated from um, Hebrew texts but were written in Greek when the Jewish culture was still producing these um, texts that they considered authoritative on some level so that's what the Septuagint is and so when I say that the word uh, Anoma the the, the Greek word for, um, for name is the translation from the Hebrew Hashem into Greek, um, I'm referring to that sort of long-standing tradition of Jewish um, translators translating their work from Hebrew into Greek, um, that these texts already existed um, around the time of the apostles. Like, they they cite from them almost verbatim. Um, That's why I also said that the the Christian scriptures are also um, commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures, um, even in their Greek form, the Septuagint form, as we call it today. Um, given that Jesus is the perceived reality of the incarnation of God himself.
0: And then now as you move on to to the councils, what was it, what was it, Peter's, for the first council? And, and before that, what did the followers of Jesus believe about him?
1: Right, so early on in Christianity, in fact, we have evidence of this even in Paul's writings, and even, even honestly, in, in the Gospels, it seems, um, You have people who are trying to make sense of what Jesus came to do, and they disagree. Um, So the Gospel of John very much is emphasizing Jesus' deity, but it's also emphasizing something else. It's emphasizing that Jesus actually did become physically tangible. The Logos um, became visibly tangible in a human body. And so there was an early sort of movement— um, scholars are trying to get away from calling them Gnostics. I, historically, if you look at anything as far as scholarship, if you look at Gnosticism, you're going to find most of the discussions on these sort of groups under that label because it's just the way that the history of scholarship has gone. There are scholars trying to move away from that term because it's too vague that we believe or they believe. I actually believe it is. It is a little bit vague, but it's useful as far as looking this stuff up. And I'm going to call them Gnostics, having said that disclaimer, who believe that matter itself physical matter is is evil it's, it's a lesser than it's, it's lesser than a spiritual quality so why would this why would god um become subjugated to matter and why would that be a good thing and so some started to take on as far as um understanding and this isn't i will say this there was there's enough cultural interaction at this point that these ideas are not exclusively greek there are some Jews who take on similar ideas. Uh, in fact, the Sadducees seem to have had a similar idea as far as um, the, the their, their disdain for the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in a physical resurrection. They, left, they believed that after you died, that was basically it. Um, maybe, your, maybe your soul went to, to Sheol, the house of the dead, but that was it. Um, so there was no need for a, a sort of physical, um, a sense of a physical sort of reality of an exaltation as later Christians would develop for the Sadducees. And they're a Jewish sect. And like I said, they controlled the temple. Um, but that being stated, uh, there was this group that, that started with the Gnostics and they went about with their own sort of, um, beliefs and they called it Gnostics because, uh, they believed they had the hidden knowledge of, of God's true nature and, and what humans are supposed to really do in the, in the world. Um, so already this group, uh, people will try to make them seem like they're a rival to, to the big Orthodox group. I say no because even in their teaching, they're punching up. Um, they're in a sense they're saying, "Well, they most people are telling you this, but we have a different teaching. That's the true teaching." Um, and so um, that word gets used; it gets is labeled onto them, um, generally speaking. Um, and so what's happening with the councils is that these Christian communities are coming together regionally. Um, not always all at once, because you can't do that for various reasons. The first obvious reason is that Christians were persecuted by the Roman authorities and even by some Judean authorities I'll distinguish and say Judean authorities, from the get-go. Um, and they were persecuted by Roman authorities for about 300 years. So you can't just – when at certain points of periods, especially in certain regions, especially in North Africa – North Africa got hit with the, some of the worst persecutions um, periodically throughout ancient Roman times – When that happens, you can't just gather a group of Christians someplace and say, hey, we need to come together and have this big meeting in order to decide what we're going to teach all together. That's a red flag for anyone who's trying to infiltrate you to kill you to just be like, hey, they'll all be here. Let's go there and just kill them all um, at this periodic times of, 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 of persecution. So they would do it regionally. Often in times of peace, in times of, like, persecution, they would had to put it off, so you'd see certain sects arise and take advantage of the persecution of the church at certain points in time. Um, but these different groups would arise, and, and these different smaller councils, these different synods, whatever you want to call them, um, some people call them synods and not really councils, some people, just to say they were collections of Christians that came together and decided things, Um would make decisions on the church and, and 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 set forth sort of this is what we all believe we all agree we've been teaching this like and emphasis on we all believe we have been teaching this they don't they don't come together and try to invent new teachings they come together and try to say what have you been teaching do we all agree on this and that's how they see themselves that's how these councils even 800 years later they interpret themselves as we have been saying these things since the beginning and these new groups have now been trying to teach us different things. Um, and that is even the idea behind the word heretic, which comes from the Greek word hyereo, which means to, to pick, to choose. So these other groups are picking and choosing from our teachings, and also picking and choosing from other teachings outside, and combining them to make some new thing. And that's why often these heresies, the teachings that heretics taught, were labeled after their followers, or their something that the followers, the teachers, who were credited with espousing those um, errors. So you had groups like the Nicolaitans, sort of coming from Nicolatus or Nicolat You had the Valentinians coming from Valentinian. You had uh, the Marcionites, which are the biggest, the, one of the most um, effective ones, um, coming from uh, Marcion, who, again, uh, going back to what you do with the Hebrew Scriptures, what you do with Jesus, he was very much um, anti-Judean, anti-anti. He didn't he didn't like the Jewish people much. Um, I would say that. Um, and so he tried to distinguish the God of the Hebrew Scriptures from the Christian God, and he even cut and pasted the Christian Scriptures apparently to cut out most references to the Hebrew Scriptures. Which, if you do that even today, you're going to have a very small and um, decontextualized Christian Christian Bible um, that won't really mean much. Because who's the Messiah? Well, that's that's explained throughout multiple layers of hebrew scriptures so you have to sort of piece together your own your own representation of what that is from the scraps you have left over um so he did that and and so that caused a lot of friction and caused many people to respond to him even hundreds of years after he died christians would write responses to marcion marcion's teachings In order to sort of um, prove their merit as as Christian theologians, and also because some people would rediscover Marcion and try to follow him or something, something like that. But these are where these councils came from. They came from regional regional sort of disputes. And so the major council, the Council of Nicaea, that started off these ecumenical councils or these councils in the domain of Rome. That's why they're called ecumenical. Comes from the Greek word which means the domain of civilization. These it, it, it could be like analogous to our word empire today in a looser term but it began as a regional dispute in Alexandria Egypt between um Alexander of Egypt the bishop at that time presiding bishop which at that point the bishop structure had become more monarchical monarchical so instead of a council of bishops over within a city you had a major bishop who would um really um uh see what was happening and and control what was happening in his city and in his region. And a bishop is just another word for an overseer, a person who um, basically is the main pastor of that area, so to speak, the main teacher, the main person who enforces what's being taught. And it was a dispute between him and I believe a lower bishop underneath him by the name of Arius. I think Arius was an actual bishop. Um, uh, And basically sometime when, when he's, when he's preaching, um uh, excuse me, he's called a, he's called a presbyter a presbyter um, or a priest. Um, so uh, I have to correct myself there because as the church develops throughout hundreds of years, the bishop and Presbyter, and presbyter office, although they, they're very much interchangeable when in Paul's writing. so in Paul's day they're, they're both the same office. By the time you get to Alexander's time they've become distinct um, So um, Arius is hearing Alexander teach his pupils, one day, and and Arius is like, "All right, he's teaching good stuff, whatever, whatever, but then Alexander talks about God, and he talks about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, you know, and Arius is like, that's, the way you're teaching that is tritheism, because you're saying that Jesus is God, and then the Father, the Son is God, and then the Father is God, that's two gods, and then the Holy Spirit's God, that's three, you're teaching tritheism, it's like, no, Alexander, you're wrong, Arius thinks, um, the father is the only one from eternity and he created the son or he gave or he somehow spawned the son in time such that the son began to exist but the son is the first overall creation and and such has his level of authority above all creation elevates him to a divine status but he is not the one true god and this causes a, as, as an uproar christians start Fighting each other in the streets. Arius, who's a very talent, who was a very talented songwriter, starts writing his songs, preaching his sort of statement. Alexander's trying to quell the situation and control his his territory and get more more presbyters on his side and even bishops from outside Alexandria with authority, such as in Antioch and whatnot in Jerusalem, and it's a mess. And this happens right before Constantine, you know, really starts closing up to the church, um, um, and, and he had some sort of conversion experience in 312, and it's it's a mess. And at a certain point, Constantine becomes the undisputed uh, champion of the world, so to speak. Um, he, he basically he offs his, his his competition for the for the Roman um, Caesars, the em, the emperors, um, and becomes the sole roman emperor and also the one christian guy who somehow has to hold together an empire that has fractured already given the silver unrest that he went through to have to do that that to, to unite um, rome under his own authority and he sees the christian church that he's just aligned himself to and they're fighting in alexandria egypt and in other places because of what eris is teaching he's like you guys have to fix this and so what happens is the first instance of this is the emperor calls for a council And when he does this, it sets a chain of reactions off in the history of the church that never leaves the church the same again, in the sense of the church then becomes more structured according to the um, systems of Rome and becomes more entangled in imperial sort of politics, even regionally, than it had been before. Because just before Constantine, you had the... The, the very strong um, uh, persecution, the great persecution, actually, under uh, Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian, where, where many Christians were killed empire-wide. It wasn't regional at this time. It was empire-wide persecution of Christians. And some of these bishops still had the marks of their being tortured by the previous emperor before Constantine and his and his sort of compadres came to power, before Constantine got rid of all his compadres. Um so that is where the, is, that is ultimately where the first Council of Nicaea comes from. 325 um, AD comes from Constantine sees this. He's like, I can't have this in my empire after I've just gone through a couple of civil wars. So you guys need to fix this. And so they come together in Nicaea and they debate. Arius is 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 considered a heretic. Ultimately, he's cast out from the church at the Council of Nicaea um, formally. Um, and Alexander's position is defended. And upheld as what the church has been teaching all along—that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are are, are one. But more 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 importantly, because the Holy Spirit isn't really focused on, and I see at first at all, um, the Father and the Son are are homoousios of the same essence, and therefore existent for existed forever in reality, um, throughout all time, as God, God singular. And so that's where Nicaea comes from and every other council just about of the ecumenical councils actually, yeah, um, deals with that sort of um, consequence of defining Christology still, but then the the Roman emperor having the authority to call councils within his own domain, especially within Rome, to settle these long arguments.
0: Okay. And just kind of going back a bit now, you have Alexander and Arius disagreeing on this somewhat fundamental point. Um, did this issue not come up amongst Christians who were speaking to each other before this? It, it seems like an important enough doctrinal belief that it would, especially if you have all these different heretics who are teaching these different things.
1: Yeah, we have some vespers of this um, it, a little bit before uh, Arius, although like formally, as far as church history, we don't really have... I mean, we don't really have um, uh, Christians really going, hey, you sound like this other guy. Um, But you do have some, you do have a little bit of a Vesper. And we just want to say Vesper is because um, I I go to to one of the epistles, one of the other letters um, that's in Christian canon. Um, Let me go real quick. Um, I'm going to give the reference for anyone to follow along. This will be 1 John chapter 2, um, which is written by um, John the Elder, the presbyter, which I just I said earlier, presbyter, elder, is typically used of, of a, um, a, a bishop's office or a pastor's office. Now, there are instances where elder just means leader, so it, it could be John the Apostle. In fact, traditionally, it's believed that the person who wrote all three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and is the Apostle John. So in 1st John, chapter 2, you have this statement going down to verse uh, 22. He's, uh, he's basically telling these Christians um, how they should live um, very generically. Um, But also trying to get them to separate themselves from people who who are not to be identified as Christian, even though they may be claiming otherwise. So he says in verse 22, who I'm reading from the English Standard Version also, by the way, um, who is the liar? But he who denies that the son is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Sorry. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the father and the son. Verse 23. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also so somehow we get these two little bits and to understand them um we'll take con- con- context to see exactly what he's talking about and that's still a little bit hazy i'll, I'll say that and that's why i say I, hes- I hesitate a little bit but maybe someone may have taught something similar to Arius before in verse 22 we see there's someone who's um apparently going around there are people apparently identified as the people who identify that jesus is the messiah well, well there still are people to this day even within the jewish sect um, or Jewish community, there are people who deny Jesus as Messiah, um, and just just generalist believes in Christianity, they deny Jesus as Messiah as well. So he is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. This is the person who is against the the Messiah. Anyone who denies the Jesus as Messiah, and he denies the Father and the Son. So he doesn't even abide according to this author. He isn't even a person who worships the true God of Israel. Um, that's how strong. Uh, christology and christian theology have become at least according to this author but then he goes on to say no one who denies the son has the father and it's interesting that he puts it in that order so he says there are there, there probably it seems like he's saying there are probably some people who say no the father is you know he the father i confess the father whatever that means but i don't confess the son and it could be confessing the son's divinity. Um, it could be um, confessing that the son is has authority on earth. Um, it could be it could be it could be it could be various things. I take it mainly to be divinity because this this author um, very much borrows language from the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, like I said, is very focused on establishing both that God that Jesus is God from eternity, but also that Jesus is born. Um, or not born. Jesus is actually fully human in human flesh as far as being physically tangible in human form. The Gospel of John is very focused on that and identifies the human nature with fleshliness. Um, So maybe someone may have taught something similar to Arius, but we just don't know. We do know that in the fourth century, um, at least, Arius' teaching arose. And actually, even after Nicaea, many people don't know this. Maybe after Nicaea, because Council of Nicaea is used as various conspiratorial things, um, uh, various misconceptions, like the Trinity became, became taught at, at Council of Nicaea. Well, no, the Trinity was taught about 200 years before Nicaea. The Actually, the term Trinity comes from the second century, as far as we can tell, from Tertullian, who wrote in North Africa around the 150s. Um, so that's about over 100 years before Nicaea. The actual term Trinity is, is, is coined. For the purpose of teaching so already the teaching is, is before the term Trinity but it's coined by Tertullian to teach that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one you have in before, a little bit before than Justin Martyr say, saying those same things and like I said you have in Matthew Father, Son, Holy Spirit identified as Toanoma or having the, the name um, uh, which even in, in the Hebrew Scriptures is, is used for um, the divine name of the God of Israel but being that as it may, after Nicaea, Arius' teaching actually becomes more popular than Alexander's teaching. So the council doesn't really work. Because um, Arius' teaching, because I said he was a gifted songwriter and other things, what it does is it, it serves as a big loudspeaker to publicize Arius' teaching. And then Christians are like, like, well, that this is... I mean, think about it. It's, it's a lot simpler to believe that, that there's one person, one God who actually created Jesus before all things. It's way simpler theology. Um, whether or not it's representative of what Early Christians, I've always taught, is a different story. I would say it's not, um, but it was simple, so it, it spread like wildfire. And and even Constantine himself, in order to keep the peace, apparently, he was at the end of his life baptized by an Arian bishop, a bishop who believed that the heresy that was that that Arius taught. Um, and his son, immediately who succeeded him, was an Arian Christian, a, a heretic. He he in fact he actively persecuted. The people who agreed with Nicaea, he actively made them, he said, you either agree with, you either at least say that Nestorius is acceptable. Or I mean, sorry, not Nestorius, Arius, sorry, different person. Arius' teaching is acceptable or you can get out of my face and you can also leave your your your, your office because I'll remove you. Um, as part of the consequence of the church allowing Constantine to call the council is that now for, from this point forward for a long time, the power of the church is combined with the power of Rome. Um, and so the, the Roman, Roman emperor can just remove you from office if he wants to, and he does that several times. To um, that happened several times, especially uh, to um, Athanasius, um, Alexander's successor, who actually defended Alexander's teachings in the Council of Nicaea. Um, so yeah, that there could be someone who taught something similar to Arius before, we don't know. And all that of the history aside, um, Arius' teaching becomes more popular after Nicaea, anyways
0: you said he gets uh kicked out so where does he go does uh where do most of his students come from where does this right
1: right so um arius you know just because he gets kicked out doesn't mean he just disappears um so arius uh if i'm not mistaken he goes uh i think he goes back um i think he goes he goes back to egypt or he goes he goes and lives out the rest of his days basically but he's still teaching he still has his followers and his followers basically spread his teaching basically everywhere. I mean, it goes to um, Antioch and in um, the Levant. Um, it goes to Rome, even. In fact, the Roman bishop there um, even kind of co-signs off of Arianism for a while. Um, so for a short while, um, according to Christian history, the Roman bishop, who later the office would be called the pope in the West, Becomes Arian, becomes a heretic, um, and you have this statement um, by later church historians of Athanasius sort of battling against all these different forces that are trying to get him to at least accept that Arianism is, is an acceptable form of Christianity. And Athanasius just won't have it because for him, it's, it's the it's the gospel is at stake. The, again. The nature of Jesus determines what he's able to do and able to accomplish and what he has come to do. So if if you screw that up, then you have screwed up the gospel. You don't have any good news to preach to people. Um, That's what gospel means. And so Athanasius is very much adamant that, no, these Aryan heretics need to be kicked out of the church. And so he's just obstinate. And you get this term Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, um, where the whole world seemed to have grown Aryan. And, um, and Athanasius is fighting against like basically all these different heretics, and he's being exiled, and he flees to Upper Egypt, which is to the south, um, to go with some monks, and then he comes back, depending on who's in power in Rome and, and whatnot, and he gets, ex- he gets back and forth, I think, five times in his life. Um, but eventually, the, um, the Nicene Christians went out, eventually. They went favor in the imperial courts and um they um take over where Arius had 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 taken over and the dust kind of settles on that but then another controversy rises that needs to be handled
0: so um moving on what are some of the other uh, major councils
1: right so after nicaea you have um a couple others i'm going to go through them just in in order um you have uh nicaea in uh 325 um see if I can because I'm be I'm going to be very frank there are other scholars that have them already memorized I really don't not in order um but you have uh, Nicaea you have um 325 you have Constantinople in 381 you have um the Council of Ephesus in 431 you have uh well in between that you have the Second Council of Ephesus also which is called the Robert Council it's, it's and it's not really ecumenical, but uh, so I'll leave that out. But you have that. But forget that one. So let's go back. Nicaea 325. Um, you have Constantinople 381. You have um, Ephesus 431. You have Chalcedon 451. Um, then I get hazy. Um, you have the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. You have the Third Council of Constantinople in 680 to 681. Then you have the second council of nicaea in 787 and that's typically where the last um council um, that's called ecumenical as an established throughout the entire domains of rome occurs in 787 and typically they're there after this nicaea is jesus eternally god or not okay um constantinople um what is the position of the holy spirit basically and also, uh, uh, again, is addresses Arianism, because that, that pops up again, um, of course. Uh, and also Macedonianism, which is the denial of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, so the denial of the Holy Spirit being God. Um, but you do have an idea of adoptionism that gets dealt with kind of in the Second Council of—sorry, uh, the, the Third Council, which is the Council of Ephesus, which is Nestorianism, which I'm definitely more interested in as a Syriac scholar— And as a Syrian Christian scholar, because um, that is the label that Christians get um, called um, later on, um, who have accepted some form of teaching that identifies Christ having two natures that are not mixed. Um, They get labeled Nestorian after that council. They're called heretics. And that's the one that's you see this things get really muddied and if, if we can get into that really quickly um, later on in death, that'd be great. Um, but after that you get Chalcedon, which is a little, little bit confusing because that has to do with um, well is Jesus does he have actually two natures that are separate that are not mingled? So the Ephesus dealt with is Jesus like are you trying to are, when you're saying he has two natures? are you trying to separate him into two persons? Are you trying to say that there's a man named Jesus? And then there's the divine son of God, and they somehow operate together, kind of overlapping one another, but not really the same person. And that's what Nestorius was believed to have been been teaching. Um, But then in Chalcedon, it comes to some people are saying, no, he just has one nature. It's the divine nature and the human nature fused together and mixed together. And from there, you have a bunch of reasons why Christians don't want to say that, because then you have things like, well, can God die? And then... Um, can, the, can the human form be eternally existent? And, 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 and different sort of arguments that go from there that are just like, we can't have this. We can't have where Jesus gets mixed totally with his divine nature, at, with the human nature. Because then also what happens to Jesus as God must happen to the other three members of the Trinity if his nature is changed. If his nature is changed and, they, and the three other members of the Trinity only share the, the one divine nature— then that affects them as well. So you have the Father then becoming affected by what the Son did and becoming um, localized in time and space, and that's a problem. Because then you have God not being everywhere in the universe. Um, And so you have these different big philosophical things that, again, come from what Jesus is able to do and what he's not able to do. And then um, branch off from there. So... That's where that comes from, the Council of Chalcedon. Then you have the Second Council of Constantinople, which basically deals with um, Jesus and some sort of nature or form of how is Jesus eternal, and it really condemns an old old uh, Christian teacher at by this time, um, about 300 years prior, because this is in 553. Origin of Alexandria who taught that jesus is divine yes but because he's eternally born from god not that he's in very nature existing in god but that he's constantly being born from the father and that's how he's eternal um and some other things too like uh, the eternality of souls and whatnot and so he becomes a heretic at that council and, and whatnot because now we're having confusion about how exactly she is eternal then you have the third council of constantinople which is Again, these are getting more and more, as you see, they get more and more um, in-depth like, uh, in and, and very um, technical. You get the Third Council of Constantinople, which deals with, all right, so Jesus has two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, but the human nature can get hungry. The divine nature can't get hungry. So when Jesus ate, and what sort of nature was he operating? Was he operating from the divine nature? Was he operating in the human nature? And if you divide the two natures of what he's operating in, isn't that still isn't that back to Nestorianism? Because then you're because then you're distinguishing the two natures. You're just, you're making it seem like it's two Christs. So that becomes an issue, and that becomes um, decided in that he doesn't have two pers- persona. He doesn't have two personae, but he has two wills into energies that work together as one but they're distinct so it refutes teachings that teach that Jesus had one will which is called um, these are all coming from Greek terms monothelitism from uh, monos and thelos um, one will and mono uh, from monos and energos um, one work or one performance um, so they refute those two things then you have the second council of nicaea nicaea the second council of nicaea in 787 is the simplest is maybe the simplest council of all the seven ecumenical ones which is just like can you have images in church or not honestly um and basically says yes you can have images you can have images in church basically you can have you can have the patience of the saints and even of jesus And and whatnot because it helps us with worship it helps us to to worship God truthfully that's what they say I'm not necessarily agreeing with with them but that's what they say in the council and it's not idolatry because worshiping God as far as the form um, worshiping as far as not worshiping the form itself but using the form to approach in your mind like how you should truly be worshiping like it helps people to see Um, jesus on the cross in order to recognize what he did for them and then that helps them have true worship that's affirmed and so that's why you see in many churches ancient churches you see the icons um even to this day many churches from those traditions um like the eastern orthodox and the eastern churches and the roman catholic church and the coptic church um and the armenian churches like they all have like uh, icons throughout their churches so those are the seven councils is a mouthful um and uh yeah
0: it's definitely a a complicated theological history and so i want to i want to focus on on just a few points well the first thing i wanted to ask is how do you address those scholars who claim that jesus never claimed divinity either those way in the past or even contemporary scholars who who make this claim
1: right and, and just as a this is a side or disclaimer i want to let your audience know getting the council was totally correct is crucial but as you even heard me slip up a couple of times then it's tough um and even back then these ancient authors <laughs> that's why they had these councils they was wait wasn't this like didn't we refute this before wait we need another council it got confusing Thankfully they kept written records, but even with that, it got confusing. Um, so just don't don't be too hard on yourself if you're looking at this stuff and you're like, oh man, I can't remember that exact that council of trust. I'm a PhD student, and we still have to look this stuff up. But that being said, to answer your question, um, there are many ways I can go about doing this. Um, I I there are really, they're really fun, fun ways to go about doing this. I think the funnest way is to go right at the source of of a lot of modern scholarship. Um uh i'll say this paul we've already addressed this earlier and i kind of did it on purpose paul's letters are believed to be earlier than the gospels i gave an example in philippians 2 in fact i'll go to it real quick just to read it to you um philippians 2 um where paul clearly sees jesus as god um in the carmen christi the hymn to christ um and so uh in fact this this very section of verses i'll read i'll I'll read the first 11 verses which is which is the the introduction and it goes into the hymn encapsulates what i told you about christology which is it's focused on what christ came to do and what is his nature that allows him to do it and so this is paul's writings philippians 2 1 through 12 and this is a letter that i do believe scholars believe is is earlier than um excuse me not all the gospels most of them Definitely earlier than the Gospel of John. So he says, and I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version again, by the way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'm going to pause there. So that's that's what he's teaching his church his church congregation in, in Philippi, or the, the churches there, to do. And he says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this here comes to him, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Again, a pause. That's that name language that's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures among Jewish communities. Even Paul is using it here so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus is lord to the glory of god the father now he used the name language earlier and he's using all this to say this is the reality of jesus this is really incarnation jesus existed in the form of god and in the more in the form of god He's he's identifying Jesus as God in that sent, in that statement, um, just by saying he's in the form of God, is that he's he's in God, he's he's existed from all eternity. He's he's there's no one in God but God. Um, in in the in in this sort of Jewish milieu thought, there's nothing else there. God is the only one before creation. Um, the prophet Isaiah is very clear on that, and um, it says he it says in Isaiah I believe of, uh, forty uh, two, um. Uh, before me was no God, no God formed, and after me there is no God formed. Um, um, so there's that. Um, and and so what people don't realize is that Paul, even in saying this statement that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, is that Paul is actually quoting. He's actually quoting um, the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting Isaiah. Uh, 45 um, which uh, if if you go to it which i'm trying to pull it up now cool all right so he says in isaiah 45 23 isaiah is here of course saying um the oracles of god isaiah was a prophet in uh in judah and he is prophesying to the Judeans or the Judaites. I'll, I'll, I'll distinguish them. This is during the Kingdom of Judah, not during Judea's time, Roman Judea, or even later on. This is the Judaites. This is before the Babylonian captivity. This is uh, uh, whoa, uh, man, about 400 to 500 years before Jesus. Um, he says, uh, in Isaiah 45:22, uh, turn to me and be saved. This is God speaking. And so Isaiah is relaying, is relaying this message to the Israelites or to the Judahites. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 23. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone on righteousness, a sword, a word, sorry, that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. So right there is. The God of Israel, stating that I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, you know. But he says then, to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear swear allegiance. And even before, verse 21, he says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of, of old? As in, who's prophesying the events of history from the long ago? Was it not I, the Lord, and there the divine name is used, Adonai or Hashem or Jehovah, which in the Greek is kurios, okay? And there is no God besides me, he says. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. And then we get to the verses I read earlier. So right there, Paul is using that language in Philippians 2 and definitely identifying Jesus as that, as that God. He's identifying Jesus as, as the kurios, as hashem very clearly in fact in in the last verse of that hymn and every tongue shall confess that jesus christ is kurios is hashem is adonai but then he says to the glory of god the father so very clearly paul has this sort of idea of um of of jesus being god very much god the same way as god the father is god very much in fact you glorify one you glorify the other you have that language again like i said earlier in first john where if you confess the son you have the father and if you deny the son you don't have the father so very early on in christianity you have this association of 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 jesus with god now people will go because scholars will definitely typically say that the gospel of mark is the very first gospel written and so what i hear from a lot of scholars um, who who are skeptical or disbelieve that Jesus would ever claimed to be God? Um, because again, Paul is not Jesus. They'll say, well, definitely that's 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 good, that's fine. But Paul, we all know Paul changed Christianity. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, which has no clear association with with Paul, um, you get this in the very beginning of the Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As is written in Isaiah, the prophet, same prophet that, that Paul cited earlier. Behold, I send my message before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So he begins, Mark begins his his, 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 his gospel telling you it's, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Um, but then he says, he cites Isaiah, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Um, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So a messenger is going to go forth and prepare the way of the Lord, the way of Hashem. The Hebrew term there for the citation is Hashem, the same word for the the very name of God, the same way as my name's Kerwin, it's the very name of God. Then immediately following that, he says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And then he goes and he says, later on in verse seven, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So right now you have the prologue, basically a little bit of a prologue or, 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 or foreshadowing that's, that's cited from Isaiah, which is there's a, there's a messenger going to go forth. He's going to prepare the way of the God of Israel in the wilderness. And John um, is, 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 by tradition, out in the wilderness. And, in fact, it says he's baptizing in the wilderness. So he's in the wilderness. John is the messenger. But the one who comes after him, according to the foreshadowing of Isaiah, has to be the God of Israel. And guess who shows up immediately after John says what he says about what this guy's going to do. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open, being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So right there, you get this foreshadowing in the gospel of mark very 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 much at the beginning and i say that distress it because many people go oh this is this is the later development well this is in the very beginning of the gospel of mark and mark is foreshadowing saying hey i'm telling you about jesus and by the way i'm identifying jesus as the god of israel now other than that you get no very clear statements from mark as far as identifying jesus as the god of israel because the rest of the of the gospel i believe he sets about proving that By the actions Jesus does um so for example uh you get this this sort of happenstance where Jesus is goes off into the wilderness and gets tempted by Satan and then he overcomes Satan it's it's given a little blurb it's not really it's not really focused on in the Gospel of Mark um but then you get some other things too like for example you get later on in in Mark chapter 1 verse 21 he comes to a synagogue teaching And there's a person there in the synagogue who's with an unclean spirit, a demon. And it's very shocking because they're in a synagogue, but there's a guy there with a demon. And the guy, the demon or the man, it's not very clear. He cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So right now you have these 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 spiritual entities these these these, 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 these uh, unclean spirits knowing who Jesus is they recognize him they somehow know him having never met him previously so we think they know who he is but Jesus rebukes him saying be silent and come out of him now no matter where you find in the Hebrew scriptures there is no man who talks to a, an, a, 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 a celestial being or a demon just by speaking to him and saying come out nobody everybody's scared to death about from these things everybody jesus just looks at him and says be silent and come out of him he has the authority over the unclean spirits just say it he doesn't pray to god before he does it he just says it the demon comes out of him and the people know this in fact verse 27 and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves said what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him so so right there knowing the historical milieu and the ancient the ancient mindset Jesus is definitely something more than just a man just from that. It's like, whoa, he's not just a prophet. He has already done something that the prophets never did. You know, he's done something that that humans by nature, they, they never thought about doing. It's like he's, whoa, what in the world? And from that on, from that point forward, you see many other things that Mark does, shows Jesus doing, like forgiving sins. Only God forgives sins. The Bible is very clear. And Jesus forgives sins out of, out of nothing. And he doesn't pray to God before he does it. There's a man who says, "Hey, if you're willing, make me clean." Well, the prophets, even even Elijah, they would pray, especially for big things like bringing people from the dead and stuff. They would pray to God and say, "God, please raise this, raise this person from the dead." And then God would tell them what to do, and they do it, and, and God will work the miracle. Jesus does it. He says, "I'm willing," and he and, and he heals this guy, this guy who's sick, who has who, um, I think is leprosy or something like that. "I'm willing for you to be healed." He heals him. And, and, it's, and it's, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing. That happens in Mark 1, 40, by the way. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him and said, if you will make me clean, move with pity. Um, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. So Jesus is like, I'm willing to be clean. He doesn't pray. He just does it. So he's doing it himself. And leprosy, if you look in the Hebrew scriptures, nobody ever gets healed by leprosy um by a prophet himself there's one instance um where uh, elisha i believe tells Naaman the syrian to bathe in the jordan but elisha's not there when he does it elijah presumably prayed to god and god tells him to tell him to bathe in the, in the, in the jordan river seven times and he all right go bathe in jordan river seven times that's it like it's a miracle that god does and the other time that i press this heel from leprosy is um miriam um this the sister of moses Who, uh, it's a very great story actually in Numbers 12. That's that if you want to use something against um, racism or racial racial prejudice, it's great because Moses marries a Cushite woman and Cushites are known for having darker skin. And Miriam and Aaron come against Moses, and apparently Miriam is the instigator because only she gets punished this way. And they come against Moses because they're jealous of him because he's having this, he's leading all the Israelites and they're they're his little, I mean he's their little brother. Aaron and Miriam are both older than Moses and they're like hey who gave you the authority to just boss us around like this especially and this happens after he married a Cushite woman so there seems to be some um um, ethnic prejudice there and god gets angry at at both aaron and miriam but he gets particularly angry at miriam and causes her to have leprosy that turns her skin white and moses and aaron are shocked and they're just dismayed because that means that their sister can't live with them. She has to be an outcast for of her life. And they're like, God, please have mercy on her. And he's like, well, you know, God's very, like, truly, still, indignant. He said, if her dad had spit in her face, spat in her face, wouldn't she be unclean for, for a couple of days? Have her stay out outside of camp for this amount of days, and then she'll be clean. And that's the one time that God actually steps in and heals Miriam from leprosy. The other time is he heals Naaman from leprosy by bathing in the Jordan. But as you see in the hebrew scriptures only god heals people from leprosy once you get it it's basically a done deal in the in the in the jewish mindset and here's jesus on earth saying i am willing for you to be clean be healed be clean and all this in mind with the very beginning of the gospel of mark it's very clear that the writer of the gospel of mark shows jesus as a jew claiming to be god and doing things that only god can do and, and he does it in a In a frame of mind that I would say is apophatic, which is a big scholar term for he does it without telling you positively, but doing it in ways of not as in he doesn't just come out and say Jesus is God, but he does it in ways of telling you who Jesus is not. So in the very first miracle Jesus does that I told you about Jesus, I mean, he casts out the demon. Jesus is not just a prophet because prophets couldn't do that in the leprosy thing. He's not just a man. Because men never healed anybody with leprosy. In fact, God does all miracles, but men don't just say, I am willing for you to be healed. I am willing to do the miracle myself. Here, be healed. That never happens in the Hebrew scriptures. And, and uh, one more thing from the Gospel of Mark, because I know I've gone on for a bit, and that's why I was like, this, dude, this is fun. There's one more text that's great that people skip over in the Gospel of Mark. And that's when Jesus says the famous, um, the teaching to the scribe, one of the scribes, when the scribe comes and asks him, what is the greatest commandment, the most important of all? It's in Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. And Jesus says something that every Jew to this day knows. And I know by heart, too. Um, it's, uh, he answers, Jesus answered in verse 29. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which in Hebrew, Shema Israel Adonai Adonai Echad, which is very much the core value of Judaism. That's the most important commandment. And he says, and you shall love, he combines that in another commandment, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe agrees with him. He says, you're right. And then Jesus says, ah, okay, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But immediately after that, Jesus teaches and says how in verse 20, verse 35, same chapter, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord. And here in the Greek, it's the same word Lord. In, in the Hebrew, it's it's not. The, the first Lord is the divine name. The last um, Lord is Adoni or even Adonai, depending on how you how you how you um, put in the vowels in there. Um, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great thong hurt him gladly. And that's it. And and that's sort of the teaching that the Gospel of Mark is trying to mirror, is that Jesus didn't always go around saying, I am. And even when he did in the Gospel of John, he's not always just coming out and saying, I am God. He's relying on people to know the scriptures and know how he's addressing himself. And say to them, who else could I be but not the Lord of glory, basically? And um, and, and, and in fact, uh, in, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at his trial, he comes out and says it. That. That's the very thing that gets him condemned. When he's quiet for most of the trial, he comes out and finally says, I am the Messiah. I am uh, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And you will see me coming on on a great cloud of glory, or, you know, basically is what he says. And and generally speaking, in all three gospels, and at that point, the high priest tears his clothes, and says, "You've heard the blasphemy." So at the very end, Jesus comes out and says, he asserts his divine nature. Um, but that's how I'll respond to people. It's 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 very clear from the Christian writings that he's identified as God early on.
0: Understood. Thank you so much for that. And I think I'm gonna ask one more question, um, somewhat related to this before I move on to. A sort of a more rapid fire session because I know we're nearing end on time. But though those questions relate to more, I guess, Islamic studies. Excuse me, but before we get to that, different people are using the gospels and the different writings uh, to different ends. And so I wonder what are the different interpretive methodologies being developed at these times, uh, and how else is perhaps logic or or philosophy being used to come up with these, or support, or even, like, innovate different uh, views of, 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 of Jesus?
1: Right, so, first off, there is an older view that scholars have been moving away from, um, where in Christian, within the Orthodox communities, you have these, like I said, you have these regions that can't always unite because of persecutions. And when I mean unite, I mean physically unite. Excuse me, they, they typically excuse me, they typically will still have travel because it's still during for the most part during peaceful times during Rome, so they can travel in secret and, and go from place to place, but they can't really come together and assemble like a grand assembly like they could later on when Rome um, endorses them. But you have communities that begin establishing themselves as centers for centers for Christian intellectual Um, girth, or or, or, um, sort of like uh, uh, wealth. Um, Places where people would travel to in order to um, learn. And one of the major centers is, of course these centers typically map themselves onto centers that already were established as intellectual centers, like Alexandria, Egypt, for example, where Arius comes from, where Alexander of of Alexandria comes from, or where Athanasius comes from, Um, even before them, Clement of Alexandria, and even Origen himself, who later gets condemned, uh, at, at the Second Council of, of, of Constantinople, came from Alexandria, Egypt. Egypt um, where Alexandria was the center of the ancient sort of intellectual circles, the center of intellectual intellectuality in the ancient world at that time. Um, and you have this old view that I said, I said earlier is being moved away from by scholars, that the Alexandrian school that develops their so-called, the Christian interpretation there, is to read the scriptures and say yeah well okay yes there is a statement here in in, in the bible for, for example jesus like let's take for example i'm just gonna i'm gonna ad-lib and, and 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 use and invent my own example to to create an example um one thing would be when jesus uh is in mark 12:41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Um, and later on, Jesus says, This poor woman put in more than the other people because she put in more given what she had than the rich who put in much. Um, they'll read that and be like, Yes, that's what it says. Read it straightforward. And then the Alexandrians will say, But there's a deeper meaning behind that. So there's that meaning, but there's a deeper meaning behind that. And the deeper meaning would be some sort of allegory of, well, Jesus, why did, he sit, why did he sit down opposite the treasury box? Why didn't he sit next to it? Well, because the Lord wants to see what you do before him. Or it would be something like that. like It would be, it would be some sort of allegorical representation where everything, everything you do in life has some sort of allegorical symbolic meaning. Everything Jesus did, consequently, has some sort of allegorical symbolic meaning. Now, that old view would say that's the Alexandrian view. The other Old View would then say the other view that was from Antioch in the Levant um, would say, oh, well, no, you just read the text as it says, and you try to stick to what Jesus is teaching. Yes, it does have a deeper meaning because he teaches it in that section, but to go any further, you you don't have the authority to really go further than that, um, other than some other text somewhere else that does it for you, or maybe some sort of insight from some sort of parallel in the hebrew scriptures now that view is not upheld now the so-called alexandrian so-called antiochian school because mostly because their church fathers did whatever they wanted <laughs> just to be clear um, they sometimes when they're near other people and then exposed to certain ideas than others they would adopt similar tactics of arguing and similar tactics of, of teaching but you find people from Antioch doing allegory, and you find people from Alexandria or, or near the regions influenced by Alexandria um, sticking more to the text. So you, and, and given certain places, they're not even all consistent. Some people will take one text as allegorical. Some people won't. Like even the text I just read, some people, I'm sure Origen might have something allegorical to say about that because he had allegory to say about a lot of things. But there might be some other people from that same region who didn't. It's like, no, just read it straight straight through. There's no, there's no allegory there. So there's that. There's also the influences, because remember, these are cultures that are interacting, not just Greek and Jewish, but Syrian, Arabian, um, Roman. Um, you have uh, also uh, 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 Carthaginian. Um, any culture you can you can imagine, even Persian cultures outside the Roman Empire, even Indian, even um, like like uh, Hindu. You have some of these cultures at certain points in time. Intermingling in, in these in these areas, so ideas can come from any way. The dominant ones for these Christians, given their cultural milieu and what they've inherited, textually, are the Jewish and the Greek. Um, but even with the Jewish milieu, Israel didn't didn't exist before um, before Jesus um, by itself. You had the Egyptian influence, you had the Babylonian influence, you had the Assyrian influence. So so really to, to scholars, it's a that's why the field's so broad and so rich and and tends to expand, which I hope it continues to do, is that you have these different cultural influences on the church that can be traced all throughout history, all throughout time. And even the church fathers knew this. And they took some of them really enjoyed tracing these these things through and trying to see where they came from. Um, to, to particularly just to prove, sometimes to prove that their one culture, like there's one culture of the Jews, um, influenced everybody else. Origen has similar arguments of that. Um, so he'll borrow from the Greeks, but then say the Greeks were influenced by Moses. Um, Clement of Alexandria, um, who came, uh, I think, slightly, slightly before Origen, would say, well, no, Moses was was, was was just superior to the Greeks, and so he knew the truth just like they had access to the truth. And then for, for, for Clement, the truth takes on this very metaphysical substance akin to God himself, like the Logos even, um, according to Clement. And so the Greeks had partial access to the Logos, but Moses had full access to the Logos. So they really interject Jesus into um, the Hebrew scriptures as far as Moses, which makes sense, right, given that this, this, this tradition came from the Second Temple Judaism um, epoch. And it's from a Jewish setting. It makes sense to then, if you're claiming this God of Israel is your God and Jesus is that God, it makes sense to say, well, the Logos then influenced Moses. Because that's what you would have necessarily believed. But that's, in a nutshell, that's how these different thought processes develop among these different Christian thinkers.
0: Okay, thank you so much. And just uh, quickly wanted to move on and somehow just incorporate a bit more of the questions that I have that come from more Islamic studies, just from Muslim background. Sure. Uh, a lot of Muslims have a negative view towards Paul. They say that he was the cause of the initial corruption of Christianity. Now, um, is this justified in any way? Uh, and when I say justified, obviously to a uh, someone who is a Christian, someone who does believe right. uh, in the importance of Paul's this, this question might seem silly. But I guess, is there any historical, um, I guess, animosity towards Paul that comes from within Christianity as well? or from sects of Christianity.
1: Right, so you have, of course you have Marcion, who very much liked Paul for the most part, and like I said, he took the opposite route. He tried to get rid of anything Judean, anything Jewish from the scriptures. You do have these texts that arise later on in Christian tradition. Um, The dates on them is kind of, um, um, sort of, sort of disputed, excuse me. Um, You have, for example, this document, these documents called the pseudo-Clementines, that really esteem the Apostle Peter over and against Paul. Um, the dates of these aren't really, um, it's not really set in stone. Um, but honestly, if you're talking about them, you're talking about fourth century to fifth century, like three hundreds and four hundreds, like a good three hundred years after Jesus or so. So yes there there have been some writings that sin has sort of an animus against Paul but they're really late comparative to what we have in the in the Christian canon um so really I mean scholars would go something actually I've read some arguments from scholars that they'll go so far as say well what really established the rule of Christian canon were the letters of Paul and so the reason why the gospels like I just pointed out how they how they synthesize so well as far as their theology um the reason why they synthesize that well is because these people chose the gospels to include based upon the writings of Paul and the Pauline um, counts. The Pauline congregations worn out, which is a, is an interesting theory. It's 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 only at the level of theory, honestly. There's no there's no concrete historical reason for saying yes. That's that over and against church tradition. There really isn't. Um, other than just that might be what you like, and so. That's how you're going to read the evidence, just like church tradition. That might be how you like it. That's how you're going to read the evidence. Um, But as far as Paul, there are some things within Paul's life that could be, just to play on that side, because I enjoy doing it myself sometimes. There are some things within Paul's life that will help you question and wonder. It's like, all right, hold up. Um, is, Is Paul really trustworthy as a christian witness given that he himself admits that he persecuted the church at one time um that's a valid question um how much would people trust someone like politically who switched parties (laughs) like especially in some times when such polarized areas um of, of policy making um how much would you trust someone who just flips sides um especially during that time when quite frankly for some Christians it meant life or death whether or not you were identified as a Christian or not. So especially at the hands of Paul who could have been the guy who threw maybe your aunt in prison or whatever, um, who now is saying he's a he's a Christian. It's like, well, a big whoop uh, even that the the book of the Acts of the Apostles is, is is aware of this in the in I think Luke's telling of the history, um, where he, he he admits, hey, some people were kinda like, wait, is Paul really converted or not? They were fearful. Um that being stated, uh, because historians tend to date the letters of Paul as the earliest form of canonical Christian text, it's very difficult to try to point to a Christianity that might predate Paul, um, just by the nature of how the arguments go. Um, I myself, in a bit, I'm not really—what I what happens in scholarship is a scholar or a couple of scholars will go and do a lot of research— to have sort of as much data as they can, and then they make decisions on that data and come come away with theories on that data. And other scholars, like myself, who don't have time to research every little thing, read their arguments and decide whether or not we agree with it or not, and that's how consensus is created. It doesn't mean all of us did the exact same work the initial scholars did, so I did not do the same initial work of deciding which text came first as the first scholars did. Definitely didn't. Most scholars don't. Um, So is there a way for a person, like, for example, I, I've, I've listened to different debaters like um, um, Shabir Ali is very much known, a um, um, Daavis who very much is known for arguing that Paul changed Christianity um, from the um, the the teaching that he believes was first codified in the um, in the gospel as the Quran says, so the Injil. Um, as the Quran calls the evangelion, the, the Gospels. The term for um, Gospel in the Quran is Injil. So he sees it as Paul came and, and corrupted the original teaching somehow. Um, and, and these other writings somehow reflect those corruptions. Um, and there have been scholars who are not Muslim who make those arguments because they see a more Unitarian Jewish tradition throughout time that gets corrupted by this trinitarian notion that brings all sorts of confusions as we just went through all the councils that had to be decided in the church so there is some merit to some skepticism there
0: okay and then next it has to do with uh the doctrine of trinity now a lot of people will claim that the doctrine of trinity is not in line with monotheism or at least not in line with logic Uh, how would you respond to something like this
1: Right. So since we're now with that very question, I, I know how people are going to respond with my answer. But I have to, I have to say with that very question, we're now on the t- on <laughs> saying it's illogical. We're now on the plane of philosophy and the plane of theology. Um, and so now we have left the tangible sort of um, notes, nuts to bolts, um, dust to dirt sort of realm of thinking. Um, And now we've gone to philosophy and theology. Uh, And so my answer will be philosophical and theological. There are two ways to answer this principally that I found useful. The first is Christians, Jews, Muslims generally believe that God is beyond description in the sense of our intellect, ourselves, our, 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 our mental capacities, even our spiritual capacities are limited. Um, We are finite beings located in space and time. Um, So, for example, I could leave um, one could leave the house. Did you close the garage door if you have one or did you leave it open? Well, that right there, you're very asking yourself that as you as you ride the bus or drive away. um, If you have a garage, I assume you drive away um, to work or wherever you're going. Speaks to you the reality that you are finite in your knowledge you're finite in your, in your temporal location, so your, your time, because you don't know whether you did or not. You can't go back in time and see if you did. Um, nor can you fast forward to the future, to when you will return home and see if you did. Um, nor can you be in two places in time at once, so you, you're always in the present, um, moving forward into the future, uh, having lived the past. You have no choice in that. So you can't even be in the future and in the past. Even though you were you once were in the past, you can't stay in the past. So you're a temporal creature, and then you have limited knowledge. Um, you 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 don't know, and then you have limit like the thing I already mentioned, limited space. You're driving away. So you're you're a finite being. So that very question makes you finite. You're also one person. Um, humanity. We all share in human nature. The the philosophical understanding, even in ancient time, is that. Human nature is uniform across the board. Um, now, whether or not that you have different sort of things you get into different ideas of like maybe other concepts of racism or whatnot, that some people might be of a lesser um, human like nature than others, um, but for the most part, people generally believe human nature was uniform. Is uniform. They use that moving forward, um, even the ancient times, going back to the Greeks and even before them, the Egyptians and before them. So. The divine nature for for, for these three major um, Abrahamic faiths is beyond limitation. So in that sense, I would say to such a person, what what is barring the divine nature in God being shared between three persons? That is what Christians believe. And they'll say, well, that's three different gods. It's like, no, because we believe that God is indivisible. We believe God is only one nature. So the idea philosophically is that the nature of God, the very being of God also is what the term is used, is the identity of God. That's why the name of, of Adonai, Hashem, Jehovah, uh, is identified as the one God of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures and is applied evenly to all three persons of the of the Godhead, the Trinity. In the New Testament canon. Um, and that identifies the one nature of God, again, Christ being in the form of God um, in Philippians 2, of being shared between three persons. Now, now you get a question of what's a person. Now that's a question that arose very much in the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. Um, but that being stated, the person would just be the identity, not the manifestation. Because there are some Christians who go off and say, well, well, God became was the Father and then became the Son and then became the Spirit. That's a heresy called modalism, uh, otherwise known as Sabellianism, that was condemned early on, even before the Council of Nicaea, and these different local synods. Um, so that's not what Christians believed either. And it's not what Paul's teaching. When, when Jesus gets baptized, um, that's not what Mark's teaching. It's not what Paul's teaching. When Paul says he'll be called curious to the glory of God the Father, he still believes God the Father is there. So they you're, you're, you're. In fact, that's how the nature is shared. Once you glorify one, you're by nature glorifying the other. So that's how it is. And there are stronger philosophical reasons for how to how to work this out. Um, for example, the distinction between person and being. Person being the actual um, established reality of the nature being um, represented in a um, in a. How can I say this without being too too confusing and also not sitting in the heresy myself? Um, being revealed in a um, I guess person is the only is the only true way to say it. Um, I'm not going to use individual because individual can be a bit vague in English as well because the 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 being of God is not divided. Um, that that comes from the sort of the idea of individual, but yet um, sort of instance of God being shared between three persons equally is, is is what's being hinted at. But there's nothing barring God from eternally being all throughout time and also filling everything, being shared between three three persons. And then the the issue of Jesus becoming man. Well, if there are three persons fully sharing. The fullness of God and God is atemporal and eternal, then locating one person in the limitations of human flesh doesn't affect the other two persons. So God remains in heaven while God is also on earth. And you actually have early conceptions of that in the Hebrew scriptures. In Genesis 19, for example, um, or Genesis 18, even. Um, uh, when God comes to visit Abraham in the Hebrew Scriptures, and is actually identified as God, um, Adonai, Hashem, um, He comes in human form with two with two um, other people who are later assumed to be angels, and He's there talking with Abraham. And later on Genesis 19, you get this statement that's curious because later on, after He finishes talking with Abraham, God leaves. And it's presumed that he was walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah to do what he came to do. In Genesis 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah gets judged by God and destroyed by God, the text is curious. It says, it says uh, let me pull it up real quick. It says in the Hebrew, and it's actually in the Hebrew, it's in the Greek as well. It's very clear. Um, and this is during a time way before Christianity. Um, it says in uh, Genesis 19, um, 24, then The Lord, and that's the divine name, Hashem Adonai, reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord, Hashem Adonai, in heaven, out of heaven. So there's a there's a there's Adonai, the God of Israel, standing on earth, raining down fire and sulfur from the God of Israel in heaven, and it's only one God of Israel, even in this even in this statement, it's only one, but there are two. Somehow, so it's just one Adonai, and I, but somehow there are two, one on earth and one in heaven, and one's raining down fire from the other, as they're both working the same, the same judgment. There are two different roles in the judgment. One's calling down fire, one's sending it, but it's 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 still the one Lord, the God of Israel, and you have you have curious things like that in in the texts, and and I I guess I could say one more thing philosophically is that. If God is so inevitable and above, why would we want to bring him down to the base level material sort of understanding of what he does? And the Christian argument throughout time has been, look, God just revealed himself as Trinity to us. We had no say is the Christian argument. I'm I'm not right now. I guess I could say I'm speaking as a Christian, but right now I'm just speaking as, as Christians spoke. We have to deal with that. And that's how they see themselves um, throughout the time that they're writing their revelation is that this is uh, revealed. This is, this is the revelation we're writing down. This is what we believe is revealed to us from God. So who are we to impose upon that? And that's why these people argue so forcefully. That's why Athanasius was so convinced that Arianism needed to be resisted. He's like, you're resisting the very God of Israel. You're resisting the very God of the universe. You're resisting God. Um, and that's why people went to their deaths to this day. They go to their deaths over, over, over stuff like this in certain parts of the world um, and, and whatnot. And, and, and that's also why some Christian sects to this day don't, dis, don't consider others who deny this reality to be truly Christian.
0: Okay. And because we're running short on time, I have just one final question. Um, <clears throat> how do you view the Qur'an's conception of Christian belief?
1: right so that's a mixed bag um I, like i told you i read the quran the full thing in english so maybe not the full quran as, as many muslims will confess but i i also have some knowledge of the muslim community i know that most muslims don't read arabic <laughs> so um but i
0: will say yeah most muslims that don't that speak or hebrew and but they make comments on uh, other scriptures so right, it's okay. <laughs> right.
1: exactly same, like, yeah, same with Christians. And, um, and uh, so I, I read uh, all 114 surah, and um, I, I will say this: it's it's interesting the conceptualizations in the Quran um, on on um, on Isa, um, which I, I think might be influenced by the Eastern Syriac pronunciation of Jesus' name, Isha. But that being that being stated, I I think that as a from a scholastic perspective it's influenced by traditions that i don't think are inherently woven from the written traditions of the christian canon it so happens that we do have texts from christians of their gospels um what the um, quran calls the Injil, from even before um the arrival of Muhammad on the scene. Um, And we, we, we can see what Christians had generally speaking. And also we have writings from Christians who lived during that time. Um, And we have writings even from some Arabic Christians. Um, So it's very difficult to try to put together certain stories in the Quran that are not in the canonical scriptures, such as Jesus speaking from the cradle um, uh, I believe the clay doves is also given as a miracle, proving that he's a prophet in the Quran, but that's not in the canonical um, scriptures. The statement that um, Allah is not the father of any, um, the statement do not say three, which seems to deny the Trinity, but like I just pointed out, un- misunderstands, I think, some of the Christian beliefs of the Trinity um, as far as there being one God shared, shared equally and fully. Between three persons, um, and that God Himself, within God Himself is community. Within God Himself is the loving relationship of what is love, because you cannot love an object that is yourself. You must love others. So if within God Himself is love, that He then reverberates to His other creatures, um, to His not other creatures, His creatures. Um, it's it's not. As a scholar, I don't think there's a there's a strong argument to say that it's pulling from those texts. Now there are other texts that it seems to be pulling from um, that come later. Um, uh, maybe perhaps the MC Gospel of Thomas um, and some other texts um, that 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 come later than those canonical texts. Um, the what is curious is that the Quran says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Masih, but it doesn't know what. My seat is, it doesn't define it it doesn't, seem. it doesn't really address whether he comes to rule over Israel or whether he comes to act as a high priest um, the prophet thing is, is addressed so in that way he is an anointed one but it's not the the Messiah as, as, as second temple Jews and even later Jews after them the rabbinical Jews would have understood um, by the way Christianity let me say this is a second temple Jewish movement so it, it's within the first it's within the epoch that comes slightly before the rabbinical Judaism of today. So just to say that. But um, I, um, hence it's an older movement. But I will say this. um, There is ample room for Christians, and I encourage Christians even to this day, to do as I have done if you're able to, or just try to to, to do as much as you can to read from the Quran um, yourself. Um, especially if you have been studious about the Bible and understand the Bible well, or you think you do, then sure, certainly pick up the Quran and, and read it. And I encourage Muslims to do the same. Um, I think there should be more dialogue here for that. And and um, and yeah. And just to just to touch on something else, um, just a sec. I don't know if we're gonna get to it, but just a sec too. There are Muslim factions that are not considered. Um, mainstream Islam that uh, are definitely needed need to be understood by people outside the Muslim um, tradition by Christians particularly and there are definitely movements within what's identified as Christian that are not considered Christian that need to be understood by Muslims and uh, even Christians too Um, like Mormons who um, are really polytheistic and maybe the most polytheistic faith on earth today. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, who actually adhere to something similar to Arianism, actually, very similar to Arianism, and so they're not considered Christians. Um, the Baha'i, who are kind of off to themselves, um, Muslims and Christians, neither of them um, claim those, those people um, to be adherents of their traditions. Um, but definitely there are, there's, there are ways where we can learn from one another and, and I have more of a dialogue and as, as scholars, even to see where these things arrive and, and, and really who influenced who um, and how this interaction happened in history. Maybe it can teach us how we should interact now. Um, that's really one of the goals of history is to make it relevant for today. And it's not hard to do. Um, so, yeah, that's how I answer that.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Kervin. You gave me so much time today and this was a very, very insightful uh, conversation. Well, oh, thank is there you. Thank, anything? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank, <laughs>
1: but. thank you. Thank you, Asher. Honestly, it's been great to hear from you again. We, I know it's mostly me talking this time because it's the interview, but it's been great. Our past conversations and everything, man. I'm just glad that you included me on this, man. Thanks.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, is there anything we should keep an eye out for uh, from your end? Uh, anything, maybe a publication or some other projects you have on the side that you want to discuss? Um.
1: I don't have much. People can look me up, Kerwin Holmes Jr., and see what comes up. Um, I don't have much. I have, well, I'll say this. When I got out of Morehouse, uh, I guess I'll I'll say this, and I'll say this with some trepidation. Um, But then again, not really, because I try to write stuff that I can say, yeah, all right, I said that. (laughs) But um, when I got out of Morehouse, I found myself a a bit of a frustrated um, college recent graduate in between grad school and I graduated a little bit early. So I had a lot more time on my hands and stuff to do do, and stuff to say and nobody to say to. So I I did the millennial thing. I started a blog. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Right. Started a blog, man. And, um, uh, the reason corner is what it's called. I, I haven't made a post on there in a bit. Um, it, it backs and wanes based upon what I'm doing in life. And I guess now my readers who haven't been following this part of my life now know what I've been doing in the background that I say I've been doing in the background, um, at least a little bit. I do other stuff, too. But um, that's the only thing that's out there right now. Publication wise, I'm just I have my head down trying to study more stuff. Um, hopefully next time we can talk to you, I'll have the, the councils down pat. Probably not. <laughs> um, honestly, this is, this, is, this is a lot of history. I mean, even even my professors who teach me this stuff, they're like, all right, let me let – me, let me, they teach it one at a time, one counselor at a time. This is a lot of church history. But um, that's the only thing that, that really uh, I can say for right now. I do look forward to being a, a, a professor sometime and a, a researcher who can who does contribute to the field um, so that publications can be forthcoming eventually. But right now I'm in the, I'm in the training stage. Um, And and I'll say this to people who are aspiring to become scholars. Don't look down on yourself when you're in the training stage. That's when you're at your most powerful, um, honestly, um, because you are able to critique and be critiqued a lot without your reputation being at stake so much as later on in life. Um, So it's a good benefit to be in the training stage and have that patience. And it takes a long time. I am on my seventh to eighth year of schooling right now. And I know people who graduated with me who gone to the medical field, and I will graduate. I'll I'll be in my field soon, God willing. Um, But just sometimes processes are slow. Sometimes you start off like I did when you don't have a lot of resources. Just be um, tenacious, be confident, and like I say, go with God. Um, But that's all. Just that blog post right now.
0: Okay, and that's that's very very good advice. Thank you again, Kerwin, for all your time.